I'm Simon Devereaux, Director of Global Talent Development at Framestore, and welcome to the Framestore podcast, a learning and talent development focused podcast made by Framestore for Framestore. From March, we are celebrating Women's History Month with a stellar lineup of female team members under this year's theme, celebrating women who tell our stories. This week's special guest is VFX supervisor, Patricia Laguno. And joining us for this week's episode as co-host is New York-based VFX compositor, M. Hackley. This is a great episode. So settle in and enjoy episode 15, part one of the Brainstore podcast. Welcome back to the Framestore podcast, episode 15, part one. Each week, we invite both a guest from our global Framestore community and a co-host with a keen interest in our guest's craft, work or career path, and we let the magic happen. We split each episode in two parts across the week. On today's episode, I warm them up by inviting our guest to the Framestore podcast daily session, our 13-question grilling, followed by Thursday's second part, where our co-host leads a deeper dive into why we invited them on the pod in the first place. On this week's episode, we kick off a series of conversations celebrating Women's History Month. This year's theme is celebrating women who tell our stories. So we're very well placed at Framestore to have these discussions where we continue to spotlight women's achievements, increase visibility and raise awareness of roles, disciplines and different perspectives across our global community. Today, we invite UK-based VFX supervisor Patricia Laguno to take on the dailies. With a career spanning over two decades, Patricia started out at Mill Film in the winter of 2001, then in the summer of 2003, moved to Framestore and never looked back. Her show credits are endless, with a range of comp roles including supervisor, lead and senior artist on such titles as Doctor Strange, Three Harry Potters, Thor Ragnarok, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, The Dark Knight, Detective Pikachu, Mary Poppins Returns, Downton Abbey, The Golden Compass and loads more. I advise you to check out her IMDb or LinkedIn profile for the full list. Joining us for this week's episode as co-host is New York-based VFX compositor M. Hackley. A graduate of the School of Visual Arts, M. joined us as an intern via our Launchpad program in June last year then successfully secured her promotion in the comp team six months later. Oh, that was a very long intro, both. Em and Patricia, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Thank you. I mean, I'm very well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. It's a really um, pleasant thing to be doing, taking a break from the um, bag dailies that we've been having for the last month. So um, yeah, this is this is excellent. I've had a, a perfect excuse to run away and just have a chat with both of you. Excellent. Yeah, it's definitely a, a rare privilege to have these these conversations as part of the day job for sure. And a, a big privilege for me because I get to do this uh, for a living on a regular basis, which is fantastic. How about you, Em? How are you today? A very early start for you in New York. Yeah, no, it's good for me. I'm happy to be here. I'm very excited to see uh, how this goes and what Patricia has to say. Awesome. You also both early signups to the Global Mentoring Programme, which is a subject that comes up a lot on the podcast. So I know, Patricia, you were part of the OG Mentor Network that I assembled <laughs> not long after I started, actually, which was incredible and a great, great validation of the programme. And I think, Em, you were one of our early signups as well as a, as a mentee. So we're in fine company indeed. How is that going? Are you uh, still involved in the mentoring programme? I'm due to audit everybody involved so far, but it's a uh, so far reaping lots of rewards. How are you finding it? I certainly am. Um, I reach out to my mentor or she reaches out to me once every couple of weeks. We're both very busy with you know, our own uh, prospective jobs, but she always gives really insightful feedback on the industry and frame store and how to navigate it, which is just invaluable information. 
And Patricia, I remember having a really uh, interesting conversation with you when I started and we were talking about mentoring. And one of the fundamentals of the program is the recognition that our industry is quite unique in that we have quite considerable crunch times on jobs. And part of the training that I do with our mentees now is explaining that communication is key because your mentor is going to potentially be off the grid for a period of time. That does not mean they're not engaged, just means they're busy on a job. Uh, we have the same with some folks who are taking periods of leave. For example, we had a, a CFX artist who's off to have a, have a baby and she's just been connected to her mentee and they've agreed to pause, let her go off and, and start her family, then come back and, and carry on. So that's the, the, the wonderful flexibility of it all. And, and actually, thanks to you, Patricia, that's a, a big part of the program now based on that early intel I got from you. Yeah, I think it's I think it's definitely worthwhile um, building in what you have done um, some flexibility in terms of um, access, but not that doesn't mean just you know not feeling pressured to have uh, regular access because then you know you don't want to be letting down anybody or making people wait around and feel unsupported. I think that sometimes a lot of people because they're so busy they maybe get a little bit hesitant to offer, you know, to volunteer help, to volunteer mentoring because they 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 think they're not going to be able to deliver the goods essentially and they are, you know, they're afraid of being of letting other people down at a point in their careers when it's so crucial to have that support. So I think that by just making it feasible for people to offer the time and the skills when when they can and how they can and maybe for artists to have multiple mentors, they can feel different areas of their needs and uh, and the skills that, that they want. I mean, I, I was quite happy to, you know, to fill in and just to discuss a wide variety of things and like have chats to people. I, I find it really, um, you know, by having the opportunity to just offer support in the, in the, in the way that you can actually give it and sometimes propose things. I found the introduction to mentoring and the little bit of training that you gave us all in terms of being successful mentors, fascinating in the sense that obviously there is at times such a desire to pass on all of the knowledge that sometimes you overwhelm people and also you're passing on things that are maybe not relevant. And, though it, you know, you just have to really always remind yourself that you just need to be very focused on what the mentee is actually asking of you and what they want to gain from the experience. And it's a little bit of a balancing act because often like when people are starting up, well, I remember when I was starting up, there's blind spots everywhere. Of course, there are. It's not that they're blind spots. It's just that you're getting going. So you've, you have the field of vision that you have because that's where you've been. And so in a way, the things that you think you're lacking might not be the things that you need, but it's just balancing, listening to people, but also giving them a little bit of context and throwing other nuggets of stuff to them that might that you think might be interesting, exciting, relevant, and might ground them a little bit so that they're better placed to explore their careers, to, to have more options. Because it's all about having all the options, right? It's, all, it's, it's about having an awareness of everything that's in there so that you can make, make good decisions and get properly excited about things. That's a really good point. And, and yeah, thank you for your kind words because it was exactly, that's the intention. And actually the, the second part that I'm rolling out at the moment is a deeper dive on what I call avoiding the advice trap, the advice monster is uh, not just going, right, do this, do that. This is how I learned. It's actually, as you say, listening, reflecting, and not putting too much pressure on yourself to be the the expert, but also not putting too much pressure on the mentee to be bombarded with all this information and giving them the, the time to crystallize their situation and fulfill their own destiny. Does that resonate with you, Em, as well as being on the other side of the, the mentoring relationship? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is such a cool perspective to kind of hear about on the flip side of things. I absolutely really agree with how you're going about the mentorship program and uh, approaching, you know, mentoring. And you're you're absolutely correct about like the blind spots. And it's just it's really interesting and validating to hear from you. But also kind of demystifying what the career progress is. Absolutely. Because I think there's a lot of um, even even at a place like Framestore, which is a super friendly, I think, in general compared to other companies, and it's a lot less hierarchical in many ways, and it's truly, I think it really does uh, have a true ethos of collaboration rather than, you know, a pecking order in any way. Um, but even then, it's I think it's impossible to not just come into an organisation and come in on a more junior role and not be daunted 
by supervisors and leads and, you know, and or very old people like me walking around and saying things. And it's about, and I think, the, again, the mental, the other really, really fundamental thing uh, and helpful thing about it, I think it's just for people to have the access sort of that kind of debunk all of that strange aura of clout that people might have and also what you might perceive to be it's kind of like a a cumulative knowledge that seems impossibly big or complex because also I think the more time that you spend in an industry the more you realize that you only really become very efficient when you real when you know that you can't know everything and that you can't you only have specific skills you have your specific strengths and it is obviously filmmaking in any in any kind of discipline is collaborative and it's a team effort. But in what we do, visual effects, even more so, you know, we've got large teams. It is impossible for any one individual to cover all most bases. And so you just need to know who you're working with. You need to be attuned to them. You need to be interested in other people's talents. You know, you can't really efficiently lead anybody unless you actually get excited and interested in what other people can do. And and you find that really, 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 really fun. Yeah, one of the fundamentals of anything to do with people management, leadership, mentoring, you have to genuinely care about other people's development. Otherwise, you're just ticking boxes or you're, dare I say, micromanaging. It's a really interesting craft. So thank you so much. I mean, the podcast format has not changed, but we've made a point of celebrating Women's History Month throughout this month. And I want to ask you both what Women's History Month means to you. I have to shamefully admit, I'm quite unaware of specific calendar markings for things. I I like to think that I'm a feminist. Uh, My children tell me that I am too much of a feminist and I'm a pain in the butt Um, and that I've coloured the world in a way that they will never be able to bounce back from so that (laughs) there's a lot of regrets in there Um, so yes I do obviously I have on on a at a personal level I have I am interested in, I have an awareness of women's rights and, uh, you know, and and women's hopes and place in society and in the world. Um, That's something that I'm keen on. But I've always been bad at anniversaries and um, birthdays and uh, social markings of particular cultural um, events. I'm not saying that that's because I think that they're not useful. It's just because I'm not really um, geared that way. But I think to raise a, to raise a general awareness and make it bring issues to the forefront uh, in any kind of social context is, of course, quite valid, depending on people's engagement and people, you know, people feeling that it that it rings true and, and, and it's something that it's um, lead to actually open, true debate about certain things and that people have a, a forum where they can discuss and, and all of those aspects of it, I think it can be nothing but good, really. The, the month is a spotlight, but actually, you know, these are stories and perspectives we should be sharing throughout the year. This is just a kind of stake in the ground because it is a preordained month, isn't it? I mean, just because we're we're spotlighting female talent this month as part of the podcast, you're not the first females I've had on the podcast, you know? It's, no. it's a real mixed bag of just interesting, stimulating conversations. So, Em, what are your thoughts around uh, Women's History Month? What's your take? Yeah, so kind of similar to Patricia, that dates aren't usually on my forefront. So I was, when I was informed of what month this was, I was kind of, you know, tickled and taken aback by it, uh, uh, just because it wasn't on my radar. I've always been a part of niches and hobbies that are generally like very heavily male dominated since I was almost as long as I can remember. So it always feels like, you know, this privilege and event for me to not only just exist in these spaces, but be able to confidently represent myself and speak up and uh, work within this growing and shifting industry, as well as, you know, other aspects of my, you know, very specifically tech-related life, just because, you know, STEM and tech in general is marginally, uh, mostly male-dominated. And so to see over the years more of my female peers and more of the women that I look up to really rise and be able to hold these great positions of not necessarily power, but weight within these companies and projects is a very important thing for me to see. And the, I mean, I mentioned it at the top of the, the podcast, the, the theme this year is celebrating women who tell our stories, which when I discovered that as the theme, way before I asked you to join the podcast, I thought, what a perfect theme for the work we do. Patricia, you talked about collaboration and teamwork, which 
if you've listened to the podcast thus far, we all talk about that. I mean, you've only got to look at the VFX credits at the end of any show, you know, commercial, episodic film or otherwise. The VFX drives the storytelling in everything that people watch and, dare I say, it take for granted, particularly on those shows. I mean, recently we did our Top Gun Maverick episodes, which is an invisible effects show, which is heavy CG, heavy VFX. But, you know, you wouldn't notice there were teams and teams of people creating that magic. So, I mean, I'm really excited to uh, celebrate women who tell our stories throughout the month. I think it's fantastic. So I think we should open the dailies. What I do on these podcasts is I start off and we have a really interesting conversation and I forget there's some set questions and a format I need to follow. Um, So I'm going to drop the big dramatic sound effect. And we're into the dailies. I'm going to ask the first question, Patricia, which is who, where, what? Who are you? Where are you? And what are you working on, but only if you're allowed to talk about it, which I assume not? Oh, I think I know. I think I am allowed to talk about it. Hey. <laughs> I, I guess. <laughs> That's a first. Not in great detail, obviously. But no, of course. You've introduced me pretty accurately. I've been doing this for 20 plus years, and this is what I love. I, I've been so happy at Framestore. Um, I started as a runner at Millfilm. Um, and then moved to editorial uh, at a time when we were still doing lab runs. So I would film out and, you know, do all the prints for all the VFX work and get it to the labs, uh, pick up and collect rushes in the morning and, you know, we'd have projectors. Um, and so we did that and I did that for a while and then moved to paint and roto and then to comp. Um, and at some point I moved, I was painting and roto, I moved over to frame store but very quickly just got promoted to junior comp and um, that was it. Just kept kept working on it. And I am now VFX supervising Purity, which is the second season of The Wheel of Time for Amazon. It's going, it's going well. It's, you know, episodic. It's quite a different dynamic to film in terms of the deliveries and the pace of everything because it is a lot more continuous rolling deliveries so it's a it's a different focus I haven't been so used to but I'm quite enjoying trying to organize myself working in a different way where you have to really think about where you squeeze deaf tasks and deaf time whilst keeping abreast of uh, you know episodic sequential deliveries it's going well we're doing tons of tons of stuff it's very effects heavy and uh, we've got work across five episodes, but the biggest one is uh, the biggest chunk of work is for episode eight. Loads of really exciting stuff that I can't describe in detail. Although anybody that's read the books probably knows what's coming. Yes, exactly, exactly. That's the that's the wonder of a lot of episodic stuff. It's usually based on on some kind of literature, isn't it? I mean, we just we did the Russell Dodgson episode on his Dark Materials, and again, you know, it's all there. All the spoilers are there, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get into some of the differences between uh, your episodic work and your film work, Patricia. But I'm keen to kind of touch on what you said earlier about your break. So you say you started as a runner way back in the day, best part of 20 years ago at the Mill or Mill Film. Um, I'd love to hear about what you would consider to be your break in the VFX industry. Was it getting that runner role or would you consider your big break to be something else? Because we often associate big break with the first role in industry, but actually that's not necessarily the big break. But I'd love to get your, your take on that, Patricia. Yeah, I think I think it's all, it's so odd because I think when, once you look back and you, you tend to artificially construct your career, it's it's the way we remember things right it's like you we forever rejigging our stories to make sense as a continuous thing which is lovely and it sounds lovely but I'm not sure that it's entirely true and I think there's so much randomness potluck sometimes with things and how things happen that you have to you have to be interested you have to be passionate you have to have you know you you have to be determined to stick it out I think as a, as, a, as a precondition to anything, you have to have a certain degree of talent, obviously. But, but I think that the rest, the results depend so much in when, where you are and to serendipity. I think that when I was doing, when I was getting started out, um, it was easier to progress. And I don't think that there's any point in pretending. Any, anybody that tells you different are just, just having selective memory. 
at least I don't know how it is in, you know, New York or London for the teams that I see and the junior people that I see. I think that um, it's a lot tougher sometimes. And then it's so market dependent and you get a big squeeze and then people get promoted. You know, like COVID has been terrible, but it has been very good for some people in terms of the volume of content that that has to but, you know, that has happened, that has created a lot of space and demand for roles. And so consequently, there's been loads of promotions, including mine, to visual effects supervisor. So, you know, it's happened along the ladder. So it's depending on, on business patterns, it's depending on, on, on loads of things. But I remember it being a lot more casual. I mean, I just dropped into the mill film and, get, you know, was a graduate from film school. I went to the University of Arts London here, did a degree in film, um, which was not at all technical and it did not contribute or make it any easier at all to either get the job or actually do the job, you know, when I started. Um, it was very conceptual, creative course that was more arts-based than, than technology-based. And, you know, we were using 60 millimeter wind-up Russian bollocks uh, to, <laughs> to shoot our films. So, you know, so you can imagine the kind of stuff that we were doing. And cutting stuff on steambacks and things so it's not it wasn't techie at all but but yeah i i i had an interest in it i couldn't actually use a computer until i was like 25 i remember typing my dissertation at university because i was embarrassed that i didn't know how to fire up a computer and i couldn't turn up at the library and so i ended up like typing my dissertation and i and you know and everyone thinks that i was ridiculous but then it's not i think technology is wonderful Again, it just goes to show that it's not about the tools necessarily. It's just about having an understanding. For me, it's having an understanding of images and a, and a love of images and an understanding of how the, the mind processes colour and light and narrative and all of those elements. And the rest is just the stuff that gets you from A to B. And it's got loads of potential and it can be really fun as well. Like I love you know, I can fall into any kind of like techie rabbit hole as well as the next person, but happily, but yeah. It's interesting. I mean, at what point, Patricia, did you, you know, you were on this kind of career, this comp kind of career path? Because you, you made a really, really acute point earlier about how we're always constantly rejigging our own stories, which I, I love that, by the way, that's, that's quote of the episode so far. And then I look on LinkedIn and I see that your, your, your career path reads very linear, you know, you've, you, there's a clear kind of trajectory all the way up to kind of VFX suit. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that, but particularly when you knew this is my career path or have you just always ridden that squiggly career that, you know, I often talk about on the podcast quite a lot. I, I think it's a combination of both things. I think in later years, I've had more of a focus and an understanding of where I wanted to go. Because I think, again, you know, you know, it was what we were talking about earlier. Once you know what the options are, then you know where to aim for. It's very hard to know where you're aiming for when you don't know what's out there, really. And I remember being most confused when I was in my 20s. And I still in my 20s, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. You know, like I just graduated and I thought, you know, I was doing some freelance camera work for some really boring sort of like box box marketing companies and covering like minor sports events and I loved taking pictures I have a really I, I love photography and I love cameras and I majored in cinematography and all I wanted to all, all I knew is I had two options I could pursue a career in cinematography by starting quite late into some apprenticeship properly at a film studio but that would probably take me 10 years to get to focus pooling somewhere at that time when I was doing it it was quite regimented and digital cameras hadn't come into the picture to free up and you know and, and kind of upend that that very structured uh, progression path that was into uh, camera operations cinematography for, for bigger films and so I just thought maybe I'm too old maybe it's a bit too late for that sort of thing I love taking pictures maybe I can just take pictures for myself please myself and I always liked maths and I kind of like since I started learning computers I really like them I like drawing and I thought well visual effects was an emerging industry then so it just seemed like something that was perfect it was it's crazy not to give it a shot you know but it would literally wasn't a planned career because it didn't ha it hadn't actually existed as an industry for long enough to be an option to aim for you know so I think it was, for me, it was more of like, this sounds fun. I'm going to get a go. 
It was such a, I mean, I used the term the Wild West a lot, like back then, 20 plus years ago, it was such a new thing, you know, yeah, moving on from kind of SVFX and practical effects to using computers, essentially. And it's still quite a new industry, although it is, to your point earlier about it, it's, it's harder to get a break. Back in the day, you get a runner role, whether you, you're a barista in a coffee shop or a graduate from a, a senior university or college. And then you would just ride that wave and see what was available. And the industry is populated by very senior people who got their start on reception. On run. You hear these stories all the time. And it is different now. It's a different, still all to play for, but it's a very different career path. So I touch on the mentoring conversation we had earlier, but that's where the advice you give as, you know, roots into industry, the frame of reference is completely off-piste. You know, your, your, your entry, my entry into industry will be completely different to, to yours, Em. You know, I mean, what was, your, what was your moment, Em, when you knew that you wanted to get into visual effects? It's kind of a polar opposite story and perspective. I was very young when I knew what I wanted to do. I saw James Cameron's Avatar when I was 12 or 13. And I remember seeing it in my living room and being like, that's what I want to do. And it never deviated from that. I did 3D for a very long time because compositing is generally speaking very inaccessible to kind of dive into and teach yourself, especially with programs like, you know, Nuke being so grandiose that they are. So I taught myself 3D starting in middle school all the way through uh, high school and into college. And then once I started college and I took my first VFX compositing class, I was like, oh, that's what I was wanting to do, not 3D. Uh, and so since then, for the past three, little over three years now, um, I've been, you know, really just loving the craft and it's just my favorite thing. And, and that's the plus of coming up now is all of that info and resource on YouTube and free, free software and, and tutorials. Yeah. So you can mm-hmm. arguably learn your craft in advance of a, a college course or a degree or a boot camp or a launch pad, if, if that's fair to say, as a very old man behind the mic here. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I didn't take like a true 3D class until towards like halfway through high school. It, but I had, by that point, I had already fully kind of taught myself, you know, Blender and graduated to Maya. And, you know, I was 3D. There was so much, you know, YouTube tutorials out there to kind of teach you the fundamentals and the ropes. So absolutely the kind of ability to be able to dive in into an industry like this today is I think so much easier and more accessible in terms of the information available. Yeah, this is true. This is true because it's the flip side of um, the fact that more people, you know, there's more competition for the roles that there are. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's so much, well, obviously all the resources that are out there are incredible because, you know, when I was running up the mill, I remember there's no training of any kind. All there was is I remember being given the option I was after I was there for running for four months to maybe at the end of my shift jump into one of the infernos with no one there, with loads of post-it notes all over everything saying, if you break this project, you're dead, like in the morning. Wow. <laughs> and in a manual that was 2,000 pages long, on and nothing and no, no, I didn't even know where to access the media where the bins went nothing just like nothing so yeah that was slightly a slightly different learning curve I think <laughs> how far we've come hey how far we've come great answers both actually I mean again such an interesting conversation I wish we had two hours to host a podcast episode um moving on to the next question in the dailies then so what's the best thing you touched on this earlier Patricia what's the best thing about being part of Framestore loads of things but the best thing Best thing I think is the people, and I think the people the people are at Frame Store because it's not. I mean, it's not accidental that there's so many people working at Frame Store. I think, I think obviously the company actively fosters those relationships and that uh, sense of being a team, and also some of it progressing further into uh, you know into into friendships and into long term connections that you've had with people I mean there are people that I've known that have worked in the company for so long and and it's nice and some of them have left but you still chat and you still bump into people in Soho I mean it's great obviously that a lot of the companies are very clustered as well so there's a there's a wider community around Framestore itself I think 
everyone that I speak to still agrees that Frame Store is it's just a great place to work in terms of that, how familiar it feels the minute that you walk in, how supported you feel, how I don't think there are many people with big egos. You know, I think it's it's a company that very carefully has tried to nurture um, a sense of everyone being included and looked after and supported in their career progression and in their personal lives when they needed it. I know that I personally, having come in when there was just one other person, another woman uh, compositing, and it was just Helen and me, that's it. There was no one else in the compositing team. They were all, um, you know, it's just really male-dominated and, you know, 3D was even worse. Uh, probably although lighting has always had more women i must must give it to to the lighters that i think they've been a lot more inclusive a lot sooner than any other department i mean i think they they i felt like it would be impossible to have kids and to come back you know and i, and I remember i remember having you know getting pregnant for the first time and then just thinking well, how is this going to work and when I come back, what's going to happen? For me, it was unthinkable, the, the way in which we were working and the crunch times and everything, that you could accommodate that around family life, you know, uh, and or, you know, the possibility of working part-time or to have any kind of, like, flexible time around childcare. But Fiona made it happen. She went out of her way to make it happen, not because anybody was asking or driving her very hard, because she was, she was personally very hell-bent on making it an accessible place and a place where you can you know where you can just still work and she wasn't gonna throw away people's contribution or talent because they could only they could only do it they could only offer it in a different way uh, and I think that's both good but I mainly think it's very shrewd and quite smart because I just think often when you extend a little bit of that flexibility we were talking about before as well to people and you take it you take into account the fact that they do have a life outside work as much as they're committed and passionate about their work, that there's other dimensions and you support them with those, you're gonna get you're gonna get a massive return and contribution in terms of what comes back, you know, and the loyalty to the company, obviously. I think it's I think it's great. I think it works. And I think it just uh, I mean, it's a testament, you know, the, the team that we have, I think it's a testament to that uh, sustained investment in, in, in employees. I think. You're absolutely right. I mean, I'm glad you used the term investment there because that's literally what it is, isn't it? It's um, you invest in talent, you know, not just giving them the tools to do their job, but the tools to be a human person in the world who has things that come up and you know whether it be starting a family whether it be illness whether it be you know you're still retained trusted supported and you know you offer that level of investment and you get it back in dividends don't you I mean I'm using lots of financial terminology here but it is uh it's true what about you and what's what's the best thing about working for frame store how you've only been here yeah less than a less than a year no, I mean, uh, I've had such a good time since starting here back in June, kind of like similarly to what Patricia said, just the community and the people who I've interacted with and who both oversee me and I work alongside with are just really good people. And they are so like willing and wanting to teach and to take their time and to share their resources and coming into this industry, even with a formal education about this craft, you don't even like scrape the iceberg or like be able to fathom like just the level of like stuff there is to learn in all conceptual sense. And so, you know, and I'm very fortunate to have been a part of the Launchpad program, which I'm sure played some form of part in it. Yeah, everyone has just been absolutely lovely. And there's such a focus on learning and continuing to learn and not just for you know me and other like very junior artists you know we had our monthly comp meeting yesterday and it was spent going over like essential nodes that you might not remember or know and it's just it's very refreshing to be a part of an industry and a workforce that wants to continue to gr- not only grow but teach as well. So I'm going to move into the show stuff now. It's one for the geeks, really, but also it's, um, I use the term, if you were to meet an alien, what uh, frame store show would you show them that, that truly exemplifies what we do? The question itself is, if you could recommend one show that showcases frame store at its best, what would it be? It's a hard one because 
it's I think that it's it's impossible because all the shows are so di- it's an impossible question to answer the first thing but I'll tell you the first thing that popped into my brain and then I thought oh I mustn't say that because then I'm gonna alienate so and so and so and so will get really angry with me um the first thing that I thought about was Paddington because I think it's um obviously we've had we have a world-class animation department and I just think that in terms of the story the storytelling the films are amazing they're hilarious they stand the test of time and I think that it's just such a well-realized marriage of storytelling from the director and how visual effects can actually not just aid that and sort of like unfurled a grand backdrop to something else that is happening, which happens sometimes in more VFX-heavy films and Marvel films and things, which I also love. But I think even though VFX is such an integral part to telling those stories, you feel that a lot of it is just amazingly exciting and grand design around some of the narrative that is happening in the centre. With something like Paddington, I think there is... You can't have one without the other. So you can't have the movie without the character and the character is frame still, really. And, and 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 I think it's in that way is like super exciting because it is such an um, embedded and integral part of the of the film itself. It's huge, isn't it? It's a huge one. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's I hear a lot about how we're so famous and I know we're famous for our creature animation. And Paddington is almost the perfect example of that. So great creature work, great, great heart to it. That's a result of the great storytelling, great script. You know, it's, it's, it's the marriage of everything. And it's, you know, one of those shows that's 100% of our work, which is something to be proud of, isn't it? Definitely. But if I was going to say, what am I most likely to show off about having been a part of? I would say Ragnarok. Yeah, I saw that on your list. That's such a great movie. It was fun. It was fun. What, 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 made, what makes it stand out for you? I don't know. It was just crazy. There was a certain amount. I mean, it was Marvel, and it was very tightly directed. There were loads of changes, and there were some, 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 some areas or some aspects and specific assets of working on it that were that felt less free in terms of what we could contribute to the design of certain things, and yet there were some other aspects uh, of the film which I f- was surprised by the amount of free reign that we got in terms of designing bits of the sequence and how it was going to play out and I think I helped out a little bit more with the Megaserta stuff and with Hella coming you know coming up and sort of like spearing the Megaserta and all that kind of stuff it was just fun it was just fun it was very colorful I love it's not it's not always possible to be doing visual effects work where you can just go completely mental on a frame and just chuck a million colors into it because everyone's so worried that everything has to be integrated and tasteful, it has to be physically accurate and it has to read optically well. And there was that, there was a lot of craft and there was a lot of technical stuff um, within it. But yet design-wise, there was, you know, the overarching priority was to just make it look fresh, crazy and visually pop, you know, you know, it would pop and it was so much fun. It's great to create something like... I mean, it was super comic book. Yeah, exactly. It was just great to be able to create something that was the most vicious uh, Disney witch emerald green on one end and then put something really, whatever, pinky and, and inoffensive and cute at the other. And they think, why? why? Oh, I can do this. It's great. Let's put it, let's chuck it all in. So it was fun. <laughs> Yeah, I had the same feeling watching it when I watched the first Guardians of the Galaxy. Because I remember the first Guardians of the Galaxy being this kind of super gonzo. There was a, a quick scene on Earth at the start and the rest, it was just like a playset for VFX artists. And Ragnarok felt like that. A lot of Marvel films that happened historically, there was uh, there was stuff happening on Earth. There was people smashing up cities and buildings. And, and Ragnarok was again in this crazy gonzo world with nothing was set in... I was going to say in the UK then, <laughs> nothing was set in, in on Earth. It was this bonkers ride, wasn't it? It must have been so fun to work on. So what is, and this is a question to both of you, because you're both in uh, various degrees in, in your comp careers. What's a common myth about your job, role or field of expertise? What do people often get wrong, Patricia? I think that, I again, I think that a lot of people just get maybe too hung up on learning the tools 
you know, trying to find solutions that are maybe smarter than they need to be to solve a problem and not remind themselves to come back to whether the image itself looks good or it doesn't rather than whether it's technically as it should be you know then maybe there's a lot of effort and time devoted to developing tools at an artist level not at a company level because i think our pipeline is great and i think you do i mean i think some of the advances that the com department has made in terms of um, moving forward with automation are just fantastic and in fact are essential and i don't know how we would be able to deliver any show without them so it's not not at all regarding that at a departmental level but i think at a personal individual artist level i have seen some people just getting too maybe too too invested in in trying to create gizmos that have obvious limitations on my work for one context but then they're not really scalable to anything else and um and then you think where you've invested that where you could have just literally just gone to a nasa library or just literally gone out with your stills camera your phone and shot some pigeons up in the street and then just library with them and put them in rather than trying to simulate something you know i mean i think the one thing that you you mustn't lose sight of is the fact that you might you have to remain flexible and open-minded about what the best way of solving something is and I think if you're a compositor, that always comes down as to what what does the final comp look like? Is it exciting to look at? Is it balanced? A compositionally, have you arranged things in the most in the most interesting way, Zen way that tells the stories? This, you know, always I think it's about context because the job that we we do is very um, obviously is very tunnel vision in that you you you're obsessing over four pixels sometimes this edge or that edge or whatever and to to have the ability to pull yourself back constantly and give yourself that content and not get too um just basically caught up in the one shot that you're working on but keep watching the edits keep watching work from other departments keep keep putting everything in context keep reminding yourself what the story is ask supervisors and leads about where you think that the eye might be going with the grades do they know what they're going to do with the images after you've done with them often the, the answer will be no we wish we did <laughs> nobody tells us <laughs> but you know i mean just to, to keep digging for a, for a wider context of what the finished product is going to be and what your what the work that you're actually doing is at the service of i think that's um that's that's the thing that sometimes get gets lost in the wayside. It's interesting. Uh, the role of an artist in whatever discipline you work in, in in visual effects is that I imagine there's that constant kind of battle between the creative and the the visual and the the storytelling arc or, or whatever it is you're looking at and the the software and the technical and the, the the mathematics and the algebra and all the kind of polygons and and it's it's two very different worlds to me. And you know, mushing them together into a, a visual effects artist role, there must be so much going on in those those brains. You know, it's, it's fascinating in many ways. Em, I didn't ask you what was a common myth about compositing from your perspective. Oh yeah, I guess it's more of um, from like a very junior role. I noticed that a lot of my peers, there's this fear of asking questions and you know actively seeking out uh, critique and more knowledge. And I've always since the very beginning of me starting school way back, you know, um, I've always been one to ask questions, you know, sometimes maybe a little bit too much. I feel like that is the only way for us to grow as artists and also as technical artists is to constantly be seeking out critique and outside influence and eyes and kind of what, you know, y'all were talking about earlier about being able to take a step back from your work. You know, sometimes, especially, you know, I would assume it's a lot more difficult the earlier in your career, you know, for me to step back from the shot that I'm working on is sometimes, you know, I will turn to my peer or I will reach out to my peer and be like, hey, can you I need a fresh pair of eyes on this shot. And I think that there is this, I'm not sure if it's a stigma or just kind of this general fear for juniors because we want to feel and come across as competent and self-sufficient, but you can do a shot all by yourself and you can struggle through the entire thing for much longer than what it would take is if you just reached out to your mentor or your lead or another um, artist who has been doing it longer than you and just ask, 
how would you approach this shot? Because that's conceptually how I've learned much more through working at Framestore than, you know, being at school is just talking to others and asking how they would approach things. And because of that, I feel like I've grown so much more over, you know, the past nine months than I have, you know, the past three years. Yeah, it's a great answer. And I've mentioned this on previous podcast episodes, like the, the, the craft of curiosity and questioning is is underrated. It's, Absolutely. It's, it's a superpower. It really is. It's uh, yeah. You can save so much time by just asking the question you're terrified of answering. And typically the person you're answering the question to will not see that as a silly question. And they'll just give you the answer and you'll be able to get on with your day. Such a, such a great answer. Thank you. There are no, there are no silly questions. I don't think there are silly questions. Um, and you know, and even when you, I, I, I think I'm very much like you. I, well, I don't know if you do. I like asking questions. Sometimes I feel like I have a big mouth as well. And so sometimes it just blurts out. It blurts out. I have, I have very, very thin filter sometimes. And I'm, it's a bit thicker often. Yeah. Um, but, um, but my thin filter makes me je- ask genuinely stupid questions sometimes. But so what? You know, it's like it's, um, so you're asking them. And if, if it's if because, because you haven't even given yourself enough time to really think about the question properly, because often you're in a hurry or in dailies or whatever, that doesn't matter either. Because you can just catch yourself or somebody else will go, what? But we told you, it just doesn't really matter. The, 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 what would matter is, as you were saying, if you were struggling on your own to resolve something, um, and uh, that you could be helped with, or that you could have, or there might be a genuine problem that by you asking the question it flags an issue to someone else, gets them thinking about something that they actually need to resolve. And that's the other one, because it's not just about you being a passive recipient of all of these other stuff. It's just that in your position, you will stumble, you're in a, in a prime position because you're testing everything, because you're learning everything and you're at that point where you're not making assumptions because you're exploring all these things. You're being very critical about all of these pieces of information that you're receiving. You are much more likely to find a design fault in a piece of pipeline that, that is there as an end user that it's actually very actively engaging with these things. So it's great. Any feedback is great. And lots of these questions have that end up being turning into a feedback loop, you know, rather than just the one way stream. The feedback is everything, isn't it? So that's a yeah, really, 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 really great answers, folks. So what's the, Patricia, what is the most important lesson you've learned over your 20 plus year career? What do you cite as the big one? Uh, don't panic. There's a t-shirt slogan right there. No, it's not that panic, is it, really? There are moments when you think that, you know, if you're really busy, things can be a bit overwhelming. And I just think it's not, it's not constant, but I do find that when, you, when you're trying to juggle many things, uh, I think stress really isn't very productive. I don't think so. I know that there's a school of thought that things that a certain amount of stress is actually conducive to get, some productivity and some good thinking happening and things. It may be that it's different for different people. I think for me, I think for me that's not the case, really. But then stress is a very relative thing because it's a thing about perception. Of course, you know, the more work you do, there's nothing there's nothing subjective about being overloaded with work or having a schedule that looks a bit mental. But it is m- mostly about how you perceive it and how much you allow yourself to worry too much about it so I just think always keeping that in mind that a lot of the impression moments to think to yourself and Lizzie Bedford told me this once she said the thing that you need to remember and always remind yourself about is if everything everything that you dreading goes wrong does go wrong um, will you care tomorrow if the answer is yes, will you care in a week? If the answer is yes, will you care next year? And if the answer to any of those is no, it's not worth worrying about it. And that's it. And so I just think it's um, it's a good one. Because I think if you, if you do worry too much, the other thing that happens is that you're not allowing yourself to actually enjoy the bits that you can enjoy while it's happening. Because even while you're going through some, you know, through more busy times, um, you're still learning you're still bonding with others. There's still moments of actual excitement and, and creativity. But I think stress and worry can sometimes be a little bit 
corrosive for that sort of thing and then they just you know you can you can maybe take over your experience of everything else so i think just trying to put it in context and and try and try to have a good time and a laugh and take it with a pinch of salt patricia who would you consider to be your most important professional mentor and again this isn't probably quite an unfair question but do you have a a, a mentor somebody you would class as being a mentor unofficial or, or official well, I think very much I can because I because I ask a lot. I have actually gained from a wide pool of people because of um, because of but there are but there are a couple of people that I keep going back to for the moments of like I'm a bit out of my depth. What would you do? One person that really helped me who doesn't work at Frankfurter anymore, and I don't think he works at VFX, was Karl McCulloch. And Kyle McCulloch, who used to be a VFX supervisor at Frankstall, was just an absolute rock star. And patron saint of all the part-timers and uh, lonely compositor women uh, would have all of the all of the riffraff on his team because he loved it. He said, oh, no, you guys, everyone else is crazy not to ask for the part-timers when they're crewing up. He was, he had flair, he was friendly, he was hilarious, he was clever. He he was incredibly generous with his uh, advice and he was the perfect accessible senior person that you would love to be steering the ship on any show because he was always approachable he was always friendly and funny incredibly knowledgeable incredibly calm he he was one the other one is jonathan faulkner who i keep pestering he's he keeps coming back and throwing me helpful lazoos when i need them Excellent. Excellent. Two, two decent shout outs there. Thank you, Patricia. Um, and any, any mentors that have helped you get your foot in the door? Yeah, absolutely. Um, two specifically come to mind. Karina Wilson is the head of VFX and 2D uh, in New York, and she's just been really awesome um, you know, overseeing the Launchpad program and helping out with all of the kind of growing pains of maneuvering pipeline and kind of conceptualizing working within these kind of confines and she's been really awesome and I've also had another mentor Avery Herzog he's been just really awesome and has like that teacher bone in his body so anytime that I ask a question that a normal person would give a one-off answer to he's immediately like let's hop on call and let's throw some nodes down and I'll, sh- I'll show you and that's just so invaluable and I just cannot appreciate that enough awesome awesome so Carl Jonathan Karina and Avery we salute you officially on the podcast that's great excellent love love some shout outs so I'm going to move into uh, a little personal favorite question of mine actually on the podcast which is about underrated tools so Patricia what's an underrated tool or tools that are indispensable for you to get get the job done well I don't know if it's underrated but it's the only tool that I use that I use for 10 hours a day which is SRP. <laughs> Very much rated. <laughs> and um, it's a love-hate relationship. Everyone, everyone moans about it, but it's the primary tool that any VFX supervisor uses for most of the day because we review everything with it. You compare everything with it. But there's very little leeway to jump out and check things in Nuke or use any other kind of software because it's it's so busy and you're always, you know, sort of reviewing work and everything has to... You know, it's a confluence of all of departmental work into into our primary sort of like reviewing tool. So I think not sure that it's underrated, M- much maligned at times, which. Uh, <laughs> we'll take a rated tool instead, Patricia. Yes. Yeah. We'll change it to a much maligned tool that's indispensable. OK, so we're going to move into the last few questions before we wrap up this first part of uh, this week's episodes, which is uh, the advice question. So I'm going to go to both of you for this one because it's uh, it's invaluable. And we've already had some great advice on this podcast already. So thank you both. So what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone starting out in your field, Patricia? You know, what's the golden nugget you'd offer up? I think it goes back again to something that Em was saying before. And I think is you have to be curious. You have to be curious. You have to talk to people, but you do have to be genuinely curious and keep questioning yourself. That if you, if you're just taking the short answer to something and you're not digging around more and you're not thinking, oh, they they gave me X, Y, and Z notes, 
and I've hit X, Y, and Z notes. And while I was doing Y, I thought, hmm, but I wonder what would happen if I did this. If you don't go there, you'll always regret it. So I just think you have to keep going there. You go there, do the notes, do everything, try to learn, try to tick the boxes, but then do push yourself to throw your hat in the ring and do your alternative versions for things, to just try and check it and see what happens, to test things. And I just think you, know, you just have to be, um, you have to have some fun with it. You have to be pushing the envelope. Years ago, I ran a workshop. We used to call it ABC, always be curious. So whatever the situation, always go in with that kind of, what can I interrogate here? What questions can I ask? How can I understand it more? What new learning can I take away from any exchange? You know, so I think that's great advice. Yep, I've got one more. Yeah, go. Let's keep keep coming. And the other one is, and this one, this one, this one is less sage and just more um, pedestrian. But the pedestrian one is, if you tech checking something or tech fixing something, and you you've seen it and you think they won't find it, they will find it. If you see it, fix it. That's it. It's so many times it's happened to me where you really say, and you wanted to get a version, and you think, oh, they're never gonna see. Oh, I'm going to go and move on to the other shop. They will find it. Just do it. If you see it, fix it. Attention to detail for sure, isn't it? I mean, often with any kind of creative pursuit, the feedback I've got over the years is, you know, oh yeah, only you would notice that. Don't worry about it. That little uh, imperfection, but actually flip it on this this podcast. is. I'm more on, on, the, on this, in this camp for sure. I think it's a good, good advice. And what's one piece of advice because you're early on in your career. So it'd be great to get your perspective on um, a piece of advice you'd offered somebody that wanted to start out in uh, the world of compositing and and working in visual effects. I mean, Patricia kind of stole a lot what I was going to (laughs) say. But I think a big one is, you know, the importance of observation. I feel like um, taking a step back. As we've talked about Framestore being good with like not having a lar- lot of large like ego politics, you know, outside of Framestore in that perspective, there are a lot of artists who have, you know, large ego politics. And, you know, even junior artists who at a certain point, like we haven't earned that right to have that kind of level of ego. Um, I think that it's really important to stay humble but also just like having an open mind and willing and wanting to learn from an outside perspective you know be open to other people's opinions not just in the context of working actually in the industry and at frame store with you know dailies and your notes but also growing outside of it whether you're a student or freelance or you're doing a personal project you know if someone says something that you might not agree with in terms of like either a technical note or a creative note, I think that a lot of our knee-jerk reactions is to kind of internally shut that down and shoot it down and be like, oh, well, that's not, I don't, that's not right. But I think that having that kind of reflection upon it and being able to think, well, if one person thought that, how many others would. Let's break down and deconstruct why they had this opinion in the first place. I think that even if you don't necessarily agree with or go with that uh, critique or perspective, I think that there's something to gain. And then from there, you can either for future projects, keep that hindsight in mind, or with your current project, make tweaks that feel right to you, but take into account those other perspectives. My next question is another personal favorite, which is... uh... What's one question you wish I'd asked you, Patricia, and how would you have answered it? What have I missed? Are we all covered? I'm not sure. I think you've been very thorough. <laughs> um, but, um, They'll all come in the second episode for them, I think. Yeah, no, no. Well, I mean, it's again, if I'm doing stream of consciousness, which I shouldn't do because I need to stop myself from doing that. But if I'm doing stream of consciousness, the first thing I think about is recipes and food. The thing that I, the thing that I'm glad you didn't ask me is the usual "What's your favourite film?" Uh, kind of question, or what you, you know, if you had to pick a blah blah blah. Because I th- I honestly think again, for compositing and the visual arts, it's just and touching upon what you were saying as well um, about observation. I think the main thing is to always keep your eyes fresh. It's just get as much reference for things as far as wide as you can. And I think 
paintings, music, never stop going to museums, never stop studying, you know, classic composition and painting, never, never really just keep it, keep, keep checking the references in, I think, uh, as much as you can. But anyway, I digress. I don't know what would you, but I'd answer it. But if you can think of any question that you wish you had asked me and you hadn't asked me. <laughs> I think we'll save that up for part two, Patricia, because I think Emma has, has done her preparation, so I don't want to steal her thunder. But that's okay. If you feel we're covered, that's absolutely right. And, uh, yeah, I tend not to ask about the favourite films. It's so subjective anyway. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the frame store, what you'd show to an alien question is a little bit more revealing. So a couple of kind of throwaway questions at the end is uh, who would you like to hear on the podcast next? Well, I'm not sure that I've listened to all of the episodes to know whether I'm going to suggest someone you've already interviewed. But you can edit that. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, we've not got that many episodes out, so I think the odds are good. I would love it if you could get hold of Bruce to interview in the comp department because he would resist it with all his might, but he would be endlessly entertaining. Brilliant. Okay. Excellent. Thank you, Patricia. And Em, I'm also keen to get your thoughts on who you'd like to hear on the podcast. Yeah, um, I think that it's kind of a 50-50 split between, you know, Karina Wilson and, and her kind of experience with Framestore. I'm so interested in wanting to learn about that. But also, and I've had a very brief interaction with this artist, but I've heard like just these stories. And you know, Nick Tanner is this brilliant senior uh, artist who is very competent at his craft. And whenever we have our monthly uh, comp meetings, he seems just so knowledgeable in what he does. And I'd love to get uh, his perspective and his take on these questions. Thank you both. So uh, my next question is our, our fun fun pairing question, which is actually to your point about recipes, uh, Patricia. It's if, if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? It would have to be something quite plain and nutritious. There's a Spanish lentil stew that I think I could possibly take with rice every day if I had to. Nice. Does it have a name or is it literally Spanish lentil stew? It's just called lentils. Nice. <laughs> in, a bizarre, in, a, in a bizarre, very literal minded way. It's just called lentils in Spanish, lentejas. Uh, and I think it's got regional variations, but essentially it's just, I mean, you can put chorizo in it, but I it would make it vegan in the house, not because of vegan, but just because of, you know, you can get these um, delicious dried um, red peppers which is what they use to make uh, paprika and what they put in chorizo which gives chorizo a flavor so they come dried and it's a little bit of flavor of love but you can um, pierce them soak them then you open them and you have to scrape the meat and if you put that in the stew you know you don't need chorizo so nice vegetarian as well that's what we like, something with the veggies. That's great. I love that. And uh, I guess uh, you won't mind me sharing that you're dialing in from uh, Spain, aren't you, Patricia? You've gone home to celebrate your, your mum's 70th. Yeah, so uh, you'll yeah. be getting plenty of uh, Spanish lentil stew time, hopefully. Yeah, I know. She's been force feeding us already. Yeah, I was saying to someone, we had a call yesterday with uh, the client. I just said to them, my mum's been pairing vegetables for like two and a half hours. She got herself <laughs> like about two kilos of artichokes. And I was like, what are you doing? What are you making? Anyway. It's all quiet. Uh, yeah, it's a big passion. Brilliant. Well, thank, thank you for sharing that. That's great. And I'm a big fan of lentils. My wife's Mauritian and uh, they, uh, her family live on lentils. They're brought up on lentils, dolls, um, dough, oh, the whole shebang. So, yeah, I'm uh, preaching to the choir, Patricia, for sure. And um, it would be remiss of me not to leave you out. Um, what is your, uh, your go-to meal if you were to eat it for the rest of your days? Oh, gosh. Again, this is such a different take than Patricia's. I would probably, I could eat black garlic tonkatsu ramen every single day of my life, if that was. Listen, especially since moving to New York and living here for a couple years um, and having like access to good ramen, uh, yeah, easily tonkatsu ramen is something I could eat just constantly. Yeah, you know, New York have good ramen. James Razzle's episode, he talked about ramen. And it took me back to when I used to travel to New York when I was with the mill. As soon as I got off the plane, I'd go to uh, Bassanova on uh, Mott Street. It's not there anymore. COVID closed it down, unfortunately. But it was this underground spot. And they used to do this green chili ramen. 
in. It was just the business, absolute business. It was the best thing ever. Anyway, getting hungry. It's lunch. It's kind of lunchtime over here, so I'm already drooling. <laughs> I'm going to finish with the question I finish on, which the legend of it started on our first episode, where Sergio Gonzalez, our unreal trainer, said the question he wish I'd asked him was, "What music does he listen to while he's working?" So we have an accompanying Spotify playlist to the podcast. Is there a go-to tune or artist that you listen to while you're working? Only if you do listen while you work, because you may not. I miss listening to that. I spend, when I was an artist, I spent obviously lots of years listening to music on the headphones. You know, when I was doing things, I miss that. It's impossible. Uh, (laughs) And so I try to compensate by reading in between times if I can listen. It's very varied. Again, who I listen to most, well, when I was actually able to, was probably Bonnie Prince Billy. Brilliant, Bonnie Prince Billy. Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll get a couple of selections from you after the podcast. Patricia will get it on the podcast for everybody else to appreciate his musicianship. What about you, Em? I have, I listen to very intense music when I work, like very heavy, like EDM and dubstep and like metal, heavy metal. Uh, I feel like when a song kind of has that like very high, you know, BPM and energy, I become the fastest photo artist on earth. I swear to God, there's something about listening to music that kind of gets you in that like energy trance. I'm just able to become the most productive person on earth. If I have to like choose a song right now, I've been looping uh, Kingslayer by Bring Me the Horizon, which is like a pretty heavy song, but I'm seeing them uh, in August. So I'm starting to prep myself. Amazing. Well, thank you both for your time on this first part. I mean, I could keep this going. This could easily be an epic two-hour episode. There's so much rich content and info, and I think our listenership will really appreciate what you you said and will say in part two. So I'm going to say Arrivederci for this episode, and we'll see you on part two. Well, that was part one. Join us for part two of the Framestore podcast this Thursday, where M takes over proceedings as co-host and interviews Patricia. See you then.